Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out ce.vcu.health.org slash Cribsiders for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. And welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am joined tonight by an outstanding <laughs> guest, Dr. Julie Brown, to discuss anaphylaxis and an incredible team of Chris the Chew Man Chew and our wonderful assistant producer, Dr. Ann Young. How's it going, Ann? Oh, it's going good. Excellent. We're really excited to have you. My last um, name is actually pronounced Young. Oh, Sorry. how did I say it? Young. Ann Young. Ann he's, just, Young. he's just saying it with his... Texas accent. Yeah, that's just uh, that's just the old drawl. Well, we're it, <laughs> we're excited to have you, Dr. Ann Young. Let's let's try to get back to kind of our formulae before I go totally off the rails. Chris, how about you ground us and tell us what what we do on the show? Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Now, Dr. Young, are you gonna tell us a little bit about our guest? Of course. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Brown. She's an emergency medicine physician at Seattle Children's Hospital and associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She received her medical degree from McGill University, Montreal, and her MPH from the University of Washington. She has also completed one-year fellowships in pediatric biomedical diseases and evidence-based medicine. She is co-director of research for the Division of Emergency Medicine. Her research interests include technology in medicine, foreign bodies, minor procedures, emergency management of respiratory diseases, and the use of technology in medicine. She teaches us to look out for erythroderma in addition to hives to keep your sickest patients supine to optimize circulation and give epinephrine early, even if not meeting criteria. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, uh, hey guys, when do you give epinephrine to a baby? No, no, no. If they have anaphylactic shock and awe. Oh, <laughs> shut up, Dr. Young gets it. <laughs> Dr. Brown, we're very excited to have you today. If you don't mind my asking, we often will be informal with guests and call them by their first name. Is it okay if we call you Julie? Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you. We are going to talk about anaphylaxis today, which is a topic that comes up a lot, but always made some people feel a little uneasy. At least I know I felt that way, especially as a resident. And we are excited to learn from your expertise. But before getting started, we'd like to know our guests a little bit better. And one of the ways we do this is asking our guests to describe themselves in a one-liner like they would in a medical presentation. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself in kind of a one-liner medical format? Well, the boring side is that I'm an associate um, professor of pediatrics and I practice pediatric emergency medicine at Seattle Children's. But on a personal side, I guess that's not making it a one-liner anymore. I'm a mom and a wife. I have two boys and I um, like sewing costumes, genealogy, and taking evening walks. So, so costumes and genealogy is a good combination. I feel like that <laughs> doesn't come up too often. Although lately, I have to say, I've been sewing more masks and uh, surgical oh. caps for my colleagues. Excellent, excellent. So my favorite question to ask is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? 
That that is such a tough question. I I, I think every failure is hard, and and maybe I have more of a collective answer, which is that I think you learn more about systems than anything. That every failure doesn't involve just you. That it it really is a a failure of the whole system more than the individual, and it's always an opportunity for. Uh, improvement of the system. And I'll give you a small example as maybe a safe example to share. We I had a patient come in with a very large wooden ring that was stuck on their finger. And we couldn't for the life of us find the ring cutter. And she was in a fair amount of distress. And the mother actually suggested trying using the ring cutter, the uh, cast saw to cut it instead of the ring cutter. And I actually wasn't sure if that would work on wood, but we tried it and it worked. And luckily enough, we got the the wooden ring off the kid's finger, but it was a great opportunity for process improvement to make sure we always had a ring cutter and we decided we needed to stock two for when the one went missing. And so that, you know, there's always an opportunity to improve your process, but it was a nice, it was a failure that turned into a nice success actually. That's Excellent. Good. One of the questions I like to ask is a favorite book or a book recommendation for people who are listeners. Do you have a book that you think every medical resident or every pediatric provider should read at some point in their life? I think one that has been pretty significant for me was The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, which is about a Hmong family whose child had really severe epilepsy. And it deals with their very different view of what that epilepsy meant to their child. And there was quite a clash between what the healthcare providers wanted for their child and what they wanted and how the healthcare providers worked to integrate, to care for the child and integrate the family's cultural expectations into the care of the child. And and I think we're all challenged with that sooner or later, um, how to meet the family's needs and their expectations and how to make sure that what we practice is in keeping with the philosophical and cultural expectations of the family. And so I think it's that book by Anne Fadiman handles that really well and was really helpful for me over the years. Yeah, I, I really love that book too when I when I read it several years ago. I think one one application that I thought of more recently is as we're sort of in this area of more being more acknowledging of health disparities, that you know, these cultural differences doesn't have to be as far wide as a culture from a different country. Even within our, even within the U.S., we have multiple different cultures with different di- different philosophies and expectations, and I think we can learn from that. Yeah, very true. Justin, should we move on? I think I think we're ready ready just to dive into this, aren't you? Yeah, let's do it. Let's get started. Why don't I start with the first case? So our first case is a four-year-old girl at Cashlack Children's Hospital. She has a known tree nut allergy, and she's eating a friend granola's bar at daycare, which did contain cashews. Uh, At the time, she developed a red, itchy, and bumpy rash all over her body within about 10 minutes and then started to vomit repeatedly after about 30 minutes. She comes to the Cashlack Urgent Care about one hour after the ingestion. And so since this episode is really on anaphylaxis, using this case, can we start how do you diagnose anaphylaxis? How is it different from a food allergy or anaphylactoid shock? And can we say that this patient has anaphylaxis? Such a great question and um, not an easy question. And I, and I think um, 
part of that question, there are really two questions we need to answer. One is, is this anaphylaxis? And the other is, does this patient need epinephrine? And those two questions have not been often as well separated as they need to be because we think of epinephrine as a drug that we use for anaphylaxis, but actually there are many times where it's appropriate to give epinephrine where the patient doesn't or doesn't yet meet strict criteria for anaphylaxis because anaphylaxis is an evolving process and because you want to give epinephrine very early in the course to um, maximize the benefit for outcomes. So a lot of work has been done by a, a consortium of allergy organizations, the NIAID, to develop criteria which fairly reliably predict anaphylaxis. And it's a pretty complicated set of criteria. There are three ways to meet the um, criteria for anaphylaxis. The first, and and for this criteria, you don't necessarily need to have a known exposure. And that is um, you have any involvement of the skin. So that can be rash or swelling, you know, angioedema. And then you have to have one of two other things. One, the first is respiratory compromise. And that can be as something, if you ask allergists, they'll include something as simple as coughing, new onset coughing. And then the second is reduced blood pressure or associated symptoms. And that could be something as simple as feeling faint. So, so rash plus one of those two things, that gets you anaphylaxis. The next criteria is any two of four symptoms for a patient who had likely allergen exposure in the past minutes to several hours. And the four things in that category are, again, skin findings, so rash, angioedema, respiratory compromise, reduced blood pressure or associated symptoms, or persistent gastrointestinal symptoms. And then the third criteria is uh, for patients who have a known exposure and have reduced blood pressure. So you, you had a known exposure to your known allergen and you pass out. That, that alone is enough to meet criteria. So you can see that those are actually fairly strict criteria to meet. And there might be lots of kids who have potential um, pretty sig- for anaphylaxis and have pretty significant allergic symptoms who maybe don't quite fall in those buckets that you're still pretty worried about. And they might still kids for whom it's appropriate to use epinephrine. And if you look at um, care plans that families are given whose kids have known food allergies, they actually have a much more conservative or lower threshold set of criteria for which they should use epinephrine. All right. So one one question I have is how exactly does epinephrine uh, work in in, in the whole cascade of anaphylaxis? So, you know, anaphylaxis involves a whole lot of effects of the histamines in different parts of the body, and epinephrine works to reverse all of those things uh, really almost perfectly. So where histamines are causing the blood vessels to dilate and leak, epinephrine causes causes blood vessel constriction. Where these histamines and immune mediators are causing airway tightening, epinephrine causes the airways to loosen again. Where the histamines are causing gut muscle squeezing, epinephrine causes gut muscle relaxation. Um, it's reversal of 
cardiovascular effects isn't exactly opposite. So histamines can either uh, mostly increase, although they can decrease heart rate and, and epinephrine also increases your heart rate. Uh, so that's not a perfect reversal, but um, usually is well tolerated, particularly in kids. And then histamines um, tend to drop your blood pressure and epinephrine increases your blood pressure. And then the final thing that epinephrine does, which um, it often isn't given credit for because it's not really in that class of drugs, is that there's some really good evidence that epinephrine actually stabilizes mast cells. So it not only acts acutely on all the end organs to and the effects they're having, it actually prevents mast cells from unloading more histamines and immune mediators to cause more reaction. And the other amazing thing about epinephrine is that it does all of these things almost immediately, whereas you know antihistamines, which of course can only act on the effect of histamines and not the effect of all these other immune mediators, has an onset of action at the very shortest um, in the realm of about 15 minutes and probably more like something like 30 minutes in most cases. Epinephrine, I just finished, sorry, I'll just finish by saying, so epinephrine really is a, a wonder drug in anaphylaxis. It is perfectly designed to do all of these, all, all the things that need to be done to reverse this reaction. Because I want to do a little teach back. I want to make sure that I understand, because I think this is a, this is an important point. And, and whenever there's like multiple criteria, it's always a little confusing. But so if there's no exposure, if you have rash and either respiratory distress or low blood pressure or symptoms... That's a criteria. So if someone has a rash and, and is looking, starting to look kind of sick, made sense. If there's a likely exposure, so they said they had a peanut, and then they need two of the four systems that are often affected by anaphylaxis, respiratory, skin, low blood pressure, and the GI system, which I feel like is often forgotten as a anaphylaxis system. Yeah, but I call it persistent, persistent GI symptoms. Interesting. And so, and so... And that made sense, right? So it's someone who is persistently having vomiting and not just someone who has a cough and spits up because we see that all the time. Yeah. And maybe they had a granola bar recently. And so that made sense. And the final one is if it's a likely exposure. So maybe they had exposure to the allergy. Known exposure. A yeah. known, known exposure. exposure. Known exposure. Right. And they, and, and they pass out. So if the yeah, person's eating sense. a cashew nut bar and has a nut allergy and passes out, we're done. We don't care if they're vomiting, coughing, whatever. They're got it. Okay. So my question is, so looking at how you're looking at these criteria, it talks about just generalized skin rash. Like I, th I think one thing that we, we often hear about is like hives. Does it matter? Do we need to differentiate hives versus other types of rash? And if we do, how, what's, the best, how, what's the best way that you found to differentiate that between other types of rashes? It's a great question. Um, and I think the answer maybe differs for families versus for us as providers. If you look at care plans, it'll just say diffuse rash. You know, we don't want we don't want to expect them to have to differentiate too precisely. For us, I think the really most important thing is to realize that erythroderma or erythema, just the, that diffuse flushing can be a really important early sign of anaphylaxis. And I actually think maybe even more than hives, often a, a real harbinger of, of worse things to come. If you see a patient who j just ate their allergen and comes in and, and looks like they have a diffuse sunburn, I would, I would be pretty um, suspicious that they're going to go on and have more symptoms because that's such a quick mast cell release response. It hasn't even had time to sort of raise the skin. It's just like, boom, they're covered red. So hives can be very polymorphous. Some are those really 
classic raised plaque-like lesions you would easily call a hive, but sometimes they are much smaller and kind of more popular looking. So I think you can be a little bit liberal in what you include in that classification, especially if it they went from nothing to sort of covered in rash in a very short time frame. Then I think I would uh, be inclined to include them in that being an allergic type response. Now, sir, you, you were talking a little bit about the rapidity and what things that make you concerned. Like going back to that, are, are there other symptoms that you're worried about or other clues in terms of looking at a patient and worrying about that they may progress to worsening anaphylaxis or anaphylactic shock? Well, that's the real challenge, I think, with anaphylaxis is that any patient can do that. Any patient can look brilliant and like a rose and then suddenly get worse, which is why we spend as much time as we do sitting around watching really well-appearing children watch Ariel on television for hours um, before we are willing to send them home because it's really hard to predict which kid is the one who's going to suddenly get worse. Although, you know, we do know there are some things that make them more likely, such as the kid who's had a biphasic reaction in the past, the kid who's got hypotensive in the past, the kid who's been admitted in the past has an increased chance of doing that again. But there really isn't, there really aren't hard and fast rules that tell us that you're safe and aren't going to be a bad player versus the next kid. And one of the things we've talked about too is the specific exposures that made people start having the allergic reactions that go along the lines of anaphylaxis. What are those most common exposures? You know, is it is it mostly peanuts? Is it mostly eggs? And and then what level of exposure is required to stimulate the immune system to make this mast cell? Like is a is touching a peanut good enough? Is inhaling peanut dust, or do they have to really go to town on a peanut butter sandwich to get a reaction? So the top eight in kids are milk, eggs, wheat, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish. Those first four, milk, eggs, wheat, and soy, very frequently resolve in childhood. And the the second four, peanuts, tree nuts, fish, and shellfish, tend to be lifelong allergies. Only um, 20% of peanuts resolve and about 9% of tree nuts resolve. There is a progression over childhood. So milk and egg allergies are are very prominent in very early childhood. And then peanuts and tree nuts kind of take over in later childhood with fish and shellfish becoming even more prominent as you get older. And then the second part of your question. The dose of how much is is a peanut enough or do they need a, a whole sandwich? So certainly ingesting the allergen is needed in most cases to have an anaphylactic reaction, although not all. And that that is a little bit the bane of a allergy parent's life, that there are these reports of kids who've had severe or even lethal reactions without ingesting the allergen. There is a case in England of a kid who was being bullied in a playground where another kid put some sort of peanut butter sandwich or peanuts or something down his back and he had an allergic reaction and he died. There are very rarely aerosolized or skin-based exposures that have been resulted in severe reactions, but it's incredibly rare. And for the most part, you do need to ingest it. The chance of a severe reaction does increase with a greater amount of ingestion, but you can have a very severe reaction with a very small amount of allergen ingested. And there's a pathologist in England named Pumphrey who did a number of studies looking at lethal anaphylaxis, who was able to document that there were patients who had 
ingested incredibly tiny amounts of peanuts, as little as one six hundredth of a peanut who had a lethal anaphylactic event. So, you know, it really doesn't take much to potentially put your immune system when you're allergic into over a kind of overdrive. And one of the reasons that's possible is that it's kind of a it's a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop when once you start activating these mast cells. So a very tiny amount of allergen exposure can lead to a massive immune response. Justin, you want to ask your question about introducing foods? Absolutely. So as part of that, if I have a newborn, at what age should I give them a peanut or a bomba or some other type of peanut exposure? Well, I... I... I'm going to stay away from that question a little bit because I'm not an allergist and I, and I know my boundaries well. Uh, I will just say that that we the pendulum has swung from one extreme to the other. It used to be that pediatricians said, when they saw all these allergic reactions happening in kids, they said, oh, we should just stop feeding kids peanuts and eggs and all these highly allergic things until later in childhood. And we should introduce new foods really slowly, uh, one at a time. Um, and then a lot of research came out that really showed that the countries that were kids, things like Bamba, which is a like a cracker with peanuts, and it had a much lower incidence of peanut allergy. And, and we realized that we probably needed to be introducing these foods to kids early on when their immune system was more immature and that it, um, it acclimated to them in a different way. Um, and so now there's a lot of work being done. Uh, there've been a lot of studies to show that that's true and that even um, kids with high potential for food allergy did better with early introduction of these foods. And so there's been a real move towards early introduction of foods, but I'm not gonna give you specific <laughs> guidance. I'm gonna leave that up to the allergists and the general pediatrician community exactly when and what should be introduced. Perfect, we'll take it. Should we go on to the next part of the case? Absolutely. You know, one other quick question, not to go off strip too much, but we had an interesting uh, clinic case that I'm just thinking of with introduction of foods that I thought maybe I could run by you. What is the earliest age where you can start suspecting anaphylaxis? Is there any type of cutoff or guidance of how young is too young to be considering anaphylaxis? I don't think there's a too young I, I don't I'm I don't know that I know the number in our research of the youngest kids, but it's certainly in a small number of months. We're we're seeing kids probably around three months of age would be my guess is the somewhere around the youngest in our in our data set who've had allergic reactions significant enough to get epinephrine. So that needle has been moving younger and younger, and that's for reasons that aren't really clear. Why is the incidence of food allergies increasing, and why, is it, why does it seem to be moving younger? We don't really know. Hmm. We had a case where the kid was switching from breast milk to formula milk, started having significant vomiting and low blood pressure, I want to say. They gave him epi. He did great. And the ED doc called me and was like, hey, just wanted to let you know this, you know, three-month-old had anaphylaxis from switching from breast milk to formula milk. Yeah. Have a nice I saw day. One, it was like. I saw one in a very young baby whose mother was um, brushing their teeth with their, their gums pretty much with a banana flavored toothpaste where you just practice the kid getting them used to having something in their mouth and had an allergic reaction to banana flavor. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to the next case. Chris, you want to take it? Yeah. 
So you learn that mom gave Benadryl en route to this to this kid to the urgent care, but then she she vomited it up five minutes after administration. So mom isn't sure how much she actually received. Is there is there any place for any of these other adjunctive therapies? You know, any of the H two blockers, H one blockers, steroids, albuterol. Is there a place in management for these patients? So there's no evidence that H1 and H2 blockers do anything other than treat rash and allergic rhinitis in um, mixed allerg- in studies of mixed allergic reactions in the emergency department setting, but there's been no really good randomized trial. So my our approach is to use them, but I really don't, we, we really de-emphasize them. So what I don't want is people opening up an order set and trying to go through the 10 possible medications they can use in anaphylaxis before they sign off their epinephrine order. Because the only medication that's ever been proven to make a difference in anaphylaxis is epinephrine. So sign your epinephrine and then go back. And it doesn't matter in the next half hour to an hour when you order the rest of those medications, because nothing has really been proven to make very much difference. So there are there are a couple for the antihistamines, there are a couple of studies of mixed allergic reactions that showed that H1 and H2 blockers together did better than H1 blockers alone in treating rash. But there are no studies that have shown that H1 plus or minus H2 blockers had any impact on the course of anaphylaxis, but nobody studied it well. And then in terms of steroids, again, there is no good randomized trial looking at whether or not there's a benefit of steroids and anaphylaxis. There's a little bit of evidence on both sides of the fence. There is a study out of Canada, a pre-hospital study, quite a large um, study that looked at patients who got steroids or didn't pre-hospital. And those who got steroids pre-hospital actually had worse outcomes than those who didn't. But since it wasn't randomized, there could have been obviously differences in who was chosen to get steroids. And EMS often don't give steroids, at least um, in the United States. So maybe there was something that pushed those EMS providers to be using steroids pre-hospital. There is a interesting snake venom study that where patients were randomized after snake venom exposure to a number of different arms. And those who were in the in the arms that got steroids actually did a little worse than those who weren't who didn't get steroids, suggesting that maybe steroids actually um, attenuated the effectiveness of epinephrine for those who went on to have allergic reactions to their snake venom. But then there are a couple of other studies suggesting that patients who have been admitted to the hospital who um, received steroids had shorter length of hospital stays and less repeated use of epinephrine if they had received steroids. Whereas patients who were well enough to go home from the emergency department, these are pediatric studies, had no benefit of steroids. So we kind of we have a little bit of evidence on each side of the fence, which really means we have no clue whether or not steroids do anything in anaphylaxis. And we really need a good multi-center study to try to address the question of whether or not um, steroids should be used in anaphylaxis. If you look at guidelines, they mostly say there are theoretical reasons to why steroids may be of benefit. So maybe you should use them and it's kind of at the discretion of the provider. But steroids also don't have much benefit um, in the acute phase. We do um, have some reason to think they 
can act faster than traditional pharmacokinetics would suggest, which is why we've seen some improved outcomes in asthma. Um, if you time your steroids really early, we see a little bit shorter length of stay in asthma. For that reason, you may want to get them on board, you know, a little earlier in the visit other than later in the visit if you're going to use them. But given that the evidence is so uh, scant that they do anything at all, again, it isn't something I think you have to like be rushing to order in the first 15 minutes of care. Your focus should really be on epinephrine and assessment of the patient. The other things you mentioned were albuterol. I think albuterol can be a really nice adjunctive therapy if your patient is wheezing and maybe can um, keep you from having to use another repeat dose of epinephrine. Oxygen is a good adjunctive therapy. Fluids obviously can be super important early in anaphylaxis. You can third space a huge amount of um, fluid. And then other things that we probably don't pay nearly enough attention to in um, emergency medicine is patient position. The patient should really be lying supine while you're both while you're assessing them and while you're giving epinephrine to um, optimize the circulation of your epinephrine and optimize patient circulation in general because you are third spacing so badly. And there are, again, um, from Pumphrey, who looked at these fatal cases of anaphylaxis, there are some reported cases of fatal anaphylaxis where patients were either rapidly rose, uh, put up to a sitting or standing position or propped up in a sitting position who then went on to die. And that, that was felt to be perhaps part of the events that led to their death. And they talked about empty vena cava syndrome, where you just had so, so much third spacing that you really couldn't um, circulate enough blood return to the heart to continue um, pumping blood around. So I, I, I think we get away with outputting patients in the supine position because the vast majority of the patients we see are kind of on the mild end of the spectrum and are circulating really well. But if you have a sicker patient in anaphylaxis, you should really pay attention to putting them supine until they are um, improving. That's great. That's an amazing pearl. There's a lot of good information there. I'm Dr. Whitney Warren. Do you want to learn more about cystic fibrosis? Did you know that patients with cystic fibrosis have absolute insulin deficiency as well as insulin resistance? Did you know that 90% of patients can now be treated with modulator therapy? Or what about that CF can present with just recurrent pancreatitis? To learn more, join me for the Cribsiders episode on cystic fibrosis. <laughs> I do want to go back quickly about the steroids because I had a question on that, that I feel like comes up a lot. Even in asthma, I feel like we often start the steroids with the anticipation that it's going to be a few hours before they, you know, kick in. And what my teaching was for anaphylaxis is really that the steroids are meant mostly for trying to prevent this biphasic reaction. Is that something that one is true? Is that why we give steroids? And two, is there any evidence for steroids in helping the biphasic action. And maybe to throw a third one in there, what is the biphasic reaction? <laughs> so all good questions, including what is a biphasic reaction, because that has not been well-defined. Um, and actually, there's some really good work going on with Tim Driven and some others in the um, PCARN group to try to um, come up with a Delphi definition of a biphasic reaction. You'd be amazed, actually, how little consensus there is on what that is. Probably the most common consensus in the literature is it is a um, complete resolution of symptoms with a return of symptoms within 72 hours. And what there is the most disagreement on is, 
can the symptoms completely resolve within the short time frame of an ED stay and then come back? And would you count that as a biphasic reaction? And I think those of us in emergency medicine are very inclined to count that as biphasic. And there are some allergists who feel like that's way too soon to consider that a biphasic reaction. So that results in some controversy. But it's definitely an improvement in resolution and then, a, and then a, a new phase of symptoms. And then in, ter- in terms of therapy, both antihistamines and steroids have been looked at in cohort studies, which obviously is not the ideal way to look at it. You really want randomized trials. But again, I mean, a number of cohort studies, neither of those medications have been found to decrease the biphasic reactions. That's helpful. So it sounds like the use of steroids at all questionable if there's any benefit, maybe some slight evidence in decreasing length of stay if hospitalized. But otherwise, the H2 blockers, the steroids, maybe some albuterol symptomatic relief, but really epi is the treatment for anaphylaxis. And epi is the order you got to get signed before the other medications. Yeah, it's all about epi. So we give we give epi on arrival before we place an IV. And then unless, unless you are incredibly sick, unless you have significant respiratory distress or airway, upper airway compromise or hypotension, we do not place an IV on arrival. We just give FB and see how you do. The vast majority of those kids have significant improvement after epi and don't necessarily need much more. And so we, we, we don't give steroids to everybody, but we'd set some criteria for who would get steroids. And anybody who's had a biphasic reaction in the past, who's had a history of asthma, who had a delayed onset of action or of uh, symptoms, which itself is a risk factor, who has long distance to care, you know, there are a number of other things that make you get criteria for getting steroids. So that's, that's kind of where we ended up. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now with, with the IM epinephrine, do you have any recommendations or tricks about dosing it? Well, the dosing you know, it's all historical. There's very little pharmacokinetic and almost no pharmacodynamic data on epinephrine, which is where you, you know, it's, so we don't know much about when you give it what the blood level is. That's the pharmacokinetics. And particularly, we know almost nothing in kids. Estelle Simons did a little bit of work in a small handful of healthy kids with food allergies coming to her clinic. There's no evidence in anybody, kids or adults in anaphylaxis who may have very different pharmacodynamics. And then there's nothing that about pharmacodynamics where you're relating blood levels with symptoms. So we know, we, we know very little, but what we do have is a very good track record of the dosing strategy that we use, which is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram in kids with a max of 0.3 to sometimes 0.5 milligrams in adults. If you want to go by that exact dosing, that's fine. So in our institution, that's easier actually for nursing staff and our pharmacists, and that's how we do it. If it works better for you to simplify that, a really easy way in pediatrics to think about it is little, middle, and big. So little gets 0.1, middle gets 0.2, and big gets 0.3. And if you do that, you are going to be great because kids tolerate high doses of epinephrine so well that to ballpark it like that is going to work really well. And it's kind of comparable if you think about it to how we use albuterol in kids. You know, if you're an adult, you probably better not go above five milligrams of albuterol or they're going to really be jittery and their heart's going to be racing and they're going to feel really crummy. But you can give 20 milligrams, 30 milligrams to a kid and it's no problem, right? We get away with a lot because they've got these young, healthy hearts. And it's the same with a kid. We, they, they, until recently, the lowest epinephrine auto injector was 0.15 milligrams. And we're giving it to these 
maybe five kilogram babies, well, they're getting three times the 0.01 milligram per kilogram dose, and they come in completely asymptomatic because they can tolerate that. And they just, you know, they don't even, they're not even tachycardic after a dose like that. Now, is there ever any contraindication to give an epinephrine? There are no absolute contraindications to epinephrine. There are, for those who do adult medicine, which is not our worry, thankfully, for the most part, although in the COVID era, we may be faced with more adults than we've seen before, you have to worry the most in patients with significant cardiovascular disease. So, you know, coronary artery disease or risk of stroke, um, because it is a vasoconstrictor, right? It's a potent vasoconstrictor, but they... There's pretty, there's very good, not very good evidence, but there is compelling evidence that even in those populations, the benefit of the epinephrine in the context of anaphylaxis outweighs the risk of the vasoconstriction because you are doing so much to improve circulation that you outweigh whatever detriment you get from that uh, vasoconstriction. So it is not contraindicated even with people with pretty high cardiovascular risks or a strong um, history of um, heart disease or stroke. How do you decide if you need to redose the epinephrine? At what point do you feel that the patient is not responding well enough or is responding, but just not, not to your liking? Like what, what thresholds do you have? So that's a question which I've devoted a lot of energy to because one of the things that we struggled with when we were doing clinical standard work for anaphylaxis is that there is a diagnostic criteria, but it's not really time dependent. And we as emergency providers need a score that it takes into consideration a moment in time. So the patient may have had anaphylaxis based on something that happened two hours ago, but they may not need epinephrine by the time they they come to the emergency department and you're looking at them in front of you. So we really need a very time-based score. So I was a quality improvement scholar for a year, and I devoted that time to developing a clinical score that was very time-based. It's called the anaphylaxis score assisting providers, and it does exactly what you want, that it scores your symptoms at the current time. So it's a little detailed compared to some other scoring tools because it asks you things like, do they have a rash now? Did they get an antihistamine? You have to account for the antihistamine. And um, are they vomiting? And is it in within the past hour? So you have to, you have to really score, you have to read it very carefully and score them very carefully. But if you use the tool well, it actually works really um, very well to provide a cutoff for giving epinephrine. And it's kind of an all or nothing, even though you get a number, it's an all or nothing. If you get five or higher, they, you should think pretty hard about giving your patient epinephrine. And if they're um, below five, then you probably don't need it. And so we're, we've been using that in our emergency department for over a year now and find it really extremely helpful on, on putting us all on the same playing field that gives us a common language. You know, the nurse will say to me, I'm bringing back a patient whose ASAP is six. I know what she means. I know she's telling me this patient needs epinephrine. And an hour later, she'll say, you know, their ASAP was three, but now it's five again. I know what she's telling me. So it's been really helpful for us. That's great. Let's say we're in the urgent care. A patient comes in with clear anaphylaxis. We give them epinephrine. They're starting to look great. How long do we observe them? When do we say, your kid's fine, go home we'll do some education on epinephrine. And when is it, how long do we need to keep them in the clinic? Yeah. Or ED? Or... Again, we don't know, and we need better evidence. And there um, is a PEMCRC study that uh, we're participating in that Tim Driven is doing that is working to try to answer that question. The classic 
you know, we it's kind of, it reminds me of croup where it used to be if you got a, a second epi in croup, you got admitted and then you got watched for six hours and then you got watched for four hours and now you got watched for two hours. And we probably can't push that window any tighter than two hours because people have tried, you know, and so that the OBS window for anaphylaxis has been trying to narrow. and We've been trying to find this population that maybe we can send home sooner. It used to be that anybody who got a second dose of epinephrine got admitted. And now I think we're finding that if you got two epinephrine doses, really it kind of back to back up front and then you did really well, you're probably going to be okay to go home. There seem to really be a group of kids who get a dose of epi and they're completely fine. And you just know they're going to sit there and be fine for four hours. And it feels like a really long time to watch them. So we reviewed our data over a couple of years and found as long as it was a food exposure, which seemed to have a little bit better outcomes than the drug exposures, perhaps because the drug isn't getting metabolized as fast, you know, and it's still in the system, that there's a, we have this like a rose group who have completely no symptoms that we can send home at three hours. And we feel like we're doing really well sending those kids home safely at three hours. But the standard, if you look at most guidelines, the standard um, is still currently four hours. So if a, a child, say, is symptomatic at home and parents give them the, an auto-injector epinephrine and they show up in the ED looking well, are you still observing them for three hours? Or are you like, hey, you're doing all right, and you didn't even really get too much symptoms? Is there, is there, what, what are your thoughts on that? So if they got epi, I still observe them. My clock starts from the epi, not from when they hit my door. But that kid would at least get three hours. And if they only, that's only if they meet my like a rose criteria, which are in our pathway. You can look up the Seattle Children's Hospital anaphylaxis pathway. If you just Google that, you'll find it. And it has our like a rose criteria. So they have to meet all those criteria to go home at three hours or they go home at four hours. Gotcha. And we'll definitely link it in our show notes as well. Yeah, that's great. And so let's say a patient comes into your ED, has anaphylaxis, gets epi, and is ready to go home. How do you counsel a parent to say, you're going to go home with an EpiPen, here's how you use it, you'll have follow-up with allergy or primary care, but how do you have that conversation about the EpiPen, what it is, and when to use it? The first thing I want to say is that there are a lot of auto-injectors, not just an EpiPen, right? There are now four brands of auto-injector on the market. There's AbbQ, EpiPen, there's a Lineage, and then there's it's an Amnial Lineage generic, and then there's a generic for EpiPen by a different company. So there's four different brands. And I and I think it's really important to not call them all EpiPen because then parents mislabel them all EpiPen. I mean, they'll they'll call poison control and they'll say, I stuck my kid's finger with an EpiPen and they have an AbbQ. You know, they don't realize they're not all EpiPen. So I think we should be a little careful in our language so that families understand what they're talking about and what they're being given. And And then sometimes if they don't understand it, they'll go to refill their EpiPen and the pharmacist will give them something different and they won't look in the bag and they won't realize till they leave the pharmacy that they were given something different and then they can't return it. So they need to know, they, you know, to be accurate in their language and what they ask for and know to look at what they're getting and know that they've been trained and what, because you use them all differently. So it's really actually very confusing for families. We at our hospital do give EpiPens, which happens to be what our hospital stocks. And I believe really strongly that a family shouldn't leave the, the emergency department without something in hand, because there's a lot of literature about poor prescription fill rates 
um, from for emergency department patients in general. And we know that it can be difficult and our patients leave late at night and they might not find a pharmacy open. And if you look at when biphasic reactions happen, you know, the vast majority um, are going to, they, they happen within 72 hours, but the biggest chunk of those happen within the first 12 hours. So that's when you really want your patient to be covered with an EpiPen or an auto injector. So we make sure they leave it. We make sure we've trained them how to use it. And then we give them a packet of educational materials from the Food Allergy Research and Education Organization, FAIR, that is available in English and Spanish that has a lot of really good information. Although uh, they've changed a little bit how they format things. So it's not quite as easy to hand out as a full packet anymore, but you can still direct them to go to their website and see all this information about for the new, the newly diagnosed and um, how to read a food label and how to talk to your school and just lots of really helpful things for the newly diagnosed family. And very importantly, um, a care plan. So I, I would at least make sure they've printed a care plan and go through it with that, that with a family that tells them what to look for. And again, a care plan for a family has a much lower threshold for giving epinephrine than the diagnostic criteria. Because we don't want families at home who don't have medical experience and who don't have the advantage of a stethoscope and a blood pressure cuff and all those other things to be trying to second guess whether or not that child um, is sick enough to get epinephrine. We really want them to err on the side of giving epinephrine. So most care plans are um, based on kind of the principle of two minor symptoms or one major symptom is sufficient to give epinephrine. And that actually leads to a lot of misunderstanding between emergency providers and families. So the family will come in and say, my patient was in anaphylaxis, I gave them epinephrine, and then they'll describe the symptoms and the emergency provider will say, they weren't in anaphylaxis, so why did you do that? Well, the emergency provider is right. Maybe they didn't meet diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis, but the family nevertheless did the right thing in giving epinephrine. And then the emergency provider is right in thinking, and understanding the diagnostic criteria for anaphylaxis, but probably has been misled by the guidelines into, into thinking that that matches treatment with epinephrine. And there are even a lot of um, publications that try to take those diagnostic criteria and use them as guidance for treatment. And that even for emergency providers, we should have a lower threshold for giving epinephrine than meeting those diagnostic criteria. So there's kind of this chasm between families and emergency providers because we're not speaking the same language. So I try to really reinforce for families at every opportunity to have a low threshold for giving epinephrine. And when they come into the emergency department and gave epinephrine, to congratulate them and tell them, they, that's never the wrong choice. You did the right thing, even if in your heart of hearts you think they overdid it and that you know that they didn't need to pull the trigger on this one. Never tell the family they shouldn't have given epinephrine because it is absolutely the hardest thing for them to do. And they are trying so hard to make that right decision. So you just need to reinforce for them that it was it's never the wrong decision. It always keeps your child safe. Early is better than late. And then just, you know, go over again with them what the care plan says for the next time in terms of um, the criteria for giving it. So I have two questions about prescribing the auto injector. So is, is, are there reasons to choose one brand over the other, or is it mostly based on insurance and what could be actually 
if they can find a manufacturer coupon, especially if they don't have insurance, as well as is there are there weight minimums that they can for prescribing these auto injectors versus using a vial and syringe? So a couple different questions in there. I'm going to answer the easiest one first, which is there's there's really good evidence that a vial and syringe is um, not a good approach to giving epinephrine. That Al Simons, she she did so much amazing research, and she did a study looking at this of families coming into clinic, and she had she gave them a, a scenario of a kid's weight, and then they had to draw up epinephrine. Uh, she trained them all and showed them how to do it, and then they had a little guide in front of them telling them how to do it, and then they had to draw up the appropriate dose of epinephrine um, for that kid's weight, and they made as much as 40-fold errors in dose, and it took them um, an average of something like eight minutes or something. It was, a, you know, it was, it, it was incredibly long. So basically, the, the message is, you, they can't do it. And that's in the calm of a clinic setting. And then she actually had residents do it too, and nurses, and they were better than the families, but not terrific either. So unless you are a very experienced ER nurse who draws up these medications routinely, it is very difficult to be drawing up these tiny doses in this one mil syringe correctly. So don't go that route. The auto injectors have been historically challenging because they only come in two doses, 0.15 and 0.3. Luckily, we can really get away with that for reasons we've talked about, that even these little babies can take the 0.15 milligrams and they tolerate it just fine. The bigger issue is that the 0.15 milligram auto injector has a very long needle for a, a very small baby. For It's not designed for kids who are less than 15 kilos. And so there are some good ultrasound studies that suggest that a, a pretty high proportion of patients less than 15 kilos have a small enough distance to bone that those needles are going to inject into bone. So I, I think that's avoidable when insurance requires that you choose a device that's 0.15 for those patients. If you just bunch up the thigh and you teach the parent to really bunch up that kid's thigh so that you're increasing the skin to bone distance. And then I think you can use the 0.15 milligram auto injectors for anyone, even for smaller kids. There's only one um, company and that's Kaleo who make AviQ who have been approved for an auto injector that is both lower dose 0.1 milligrams and also has a much smaller needle that is better designed for kids who are less than 15 kilos. And it's approved for kids down to 10 kilos, but it's still going to be the best choice for kids who are less than 10 kilos. Other than that, you know, I, I have some preferences, but I'm not going to, my preferences are my preferences. And I think uh, there are very, what I've learned from spending a lot of time on allergy social media groups is that different people prefer different things. Um, and have different reasons preferring them. for preferring them. Some people have motor difficulties and find one device easier to open uh, or easier to open with one hand. And they like the advantage of doing that while they're holding the kid. And they others like the convenience of something that is better shaped to carry in a pocket or say their teen will carry it better. So I think it's a little bit individual. And then insurance is a huge issue and very tricky to navigate and even if you don't know to order your EpiPen as an epinephrine generic from the pharmacy, you can result, that can result in really different costs to you, even though both products are made by Myelin. So you have to really be smart and educated as you try to navigate this as a consumer. It is not well designed for the consumer or, you know, it is not 
favorable to the consumer. How does anaphylaxis present differently in the pediatric population or in babies compared to adolescents, young adults, or adults? That is, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think a lot of things are the same, but perhaps expressed a little differently. For example, I think maybe kids are still feeling the same neurologic symptoms of anxiety and this sort of sense of doom that a a parent maybe is feeling, but how do they express that to you? So for a kid that may be expressed as, uh, for an infant that may be expressed as crying or fussiness, for a toddler that may be crawling up in your lap lap and being clingy and, and not behaving the same. But a lot of other things may be pretty similar. The rash obviously is going to be pretty similar. The respiratory findings are going to be pretty similar. Gastrointestinal findings, you're not going to have a kid being able to tell you they're nauseated or having a stomach ache, but if it gets to the point of vomiting, so you know that may be a little bit later. Cardiovascular, they're not going to be able to tell you they feel faint, but if they may look like they're sleepy or less alert or stumbling. So you you know it may again be something that you have to be more attentive to or you may see a little bit later. The airway issues may be a little harder to know. In an adult you can they can tell you I have this feeling in my throat, it's hard to swallow. In a kid we may pay attention to them um, smacking their lips or doing funny things with their tongue or drooling. And I'm going to have, particularly because I know epinephrine is such a safe medication in a kid, and I know I have these challenges with a kid telling me exactly how they feel, I'm going to have a very low threshold for uh, responding to those symptoms and including those symptoms as a potential symptom of anaphylaxis. Great. Thank you. I guess as we get close to wrapping up, what do you see in the in the future of anaphylaxis in terms of research or treatments that that you that you know of and are excited about? You know, we've talked about some of the more standard things that I'm hoping to see done: a randomized trial of steroids. I'd like to see a randomized trial of antihistamines. These are such basic questions. Um, studies looking at how long should we be observing and who should be admitted. I think those are the basic questions we should answer more. I think the the more revolutionary things um, that are going to just markedly change life for these patients are if we can get away from needing intramuscular epinephrine. So there are studies looking at sublingual epinephrine, looking at intranasal epinephrine. There's our no needle injectable epinephrine. So those are those are some of the epinephrine kind of um, things of the future. And then obviously studies trying to look at curing food allergies and understanding the microbiome and understanding why this is happening in the first place that will uh, make a, the biggest difference for these families. So thank you so much for for spending some time with us. You know, my, my last question would be. What are your sort of, for our listeners, what would be your main take-home points for them? What, if they were to walk away from this discussion, what, what are some of the biggest things you think they, they need to remember? Uh, so I, I would start with uh, believe your families and um, respect their experience. Many of these families have many years of dealing with anaphylaxis, often in a medical environment that has not always been terribly supportive and maybe not always as knowledgeable as they are. So really try to give them your full support. Don't be afraid of epinephrine. It really is kind of a wonder drug in anaphylaxis. It reverses all the signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis. It really seems perfectly designed 
to handle and attack this problem. And I, I think that's not by chance. I mean, we make adrenaline and I and this reaction is this, as I talked about, this self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing reaction. And we must have had something to turn it off. And I think epinephrine, as much as we think of it as a flight and fight drug, also I think has an intended very important role in dealing with these allergic reactions. So epinephrine is your friend. Don't be afraid of it. And don't be afraid to give it to kids. I think particularly for those who don't deal with kids all the time, I think we see people sometimes having a reluctance and thinking of epinephrine as being scary or dangerous for kids. It's even more safe for use in kids um, than in adults. And so just don't hesitate to use it. Even the earlier you give it, the better the outcomes. So give it early and don't be afraid of it. It's a wonder drug. I, I think this is great. I'm going to use Epi a lot more because of this. I'm going to try it for urinary tract infections. I'm going to try it for cellulitis. <laughs> I, this sounds like the miracle drug. I, I'm ready to, to pull the trigger with a much lower threshold now. I'm, gonna put, great. I'm putting in my quarantine cocktails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. COVID tests and, and uh, epinephrine infection. And everyone's feeling better by the time they go home. Well, we really want to thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything you want to plug before we go? As I've said, our anaphylaxis um, pathway is available online and my anaphylaxis score is there for you to see as part of our anaphylaxis pathway. I do have lots of things available on YouTube. I take apart auto injectors and talk about different aspects of auto injector design and how they work. And I, I do it mostly to answer questions, questions that allergy families have. So it's all there. And I do have anaphylaxis talks that cover a lot of what we've talked about today and more that are also available for viewing through YouTube. Amazing. Yeah. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Sign up for our mailing list at thecribsiders.com slash podcast to get our knowledge food formula feeds so notes, <laughs> delivered directly to your inbox. Yeah. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Dr. Ann Young. Thank you for joining us tonight. I have been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Ann Young. And this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.